please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8. As you turn there, let me just echo something Ben said earlier. I would encourage you to go and, and look at the ministries that exist out there in the, in the foyer this morning after our, our church services. It's encouraging to see all the ministries that are taking place, even if they're not ministries you perhaps have been called to. And if you're involved in our church and yet not involved in a ministry, let me strongly encourage you to, to consider what ministry God is calling you to. God has equipped each believer with a spiritual gift, with a gift that this church needs in order to function as God has called it to function. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, he says that, that Christ has given gifts uh, to, to men, and then he goes on, he says he's given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the picture of what the church should be as each member is exercising their spiritual gifts. And so I would encourage you to go out uh, this, this morning, if, especially if you're not involved in a ministry already, look at the different ministry opportunities that exist and, and ask God, how are you calling me to help build the church? What's my part of working properly so that your church can be matured? So that's, that's my encouragement to you this morning. Uh, now we're going to read Luke chapter 8 together. If you'd stand with me as we read Luke chapter 8. We continue a series of three stories as Jesus exercises his authority, and Luke shows that to us. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, it says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are, are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, 
do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But talk, taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. You may be seated, and may we be encouraged by God's word this morning. Let me pray. And Father, we thank you for the authority that your son Jesus has over all things. We pray that our hearts would be in submission to him this morning as we look at the truth of your word, and we pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Ray Kurzweil is a man with a rather ambitious plan. Kurzweil's plan, put quite simply, is to live forever. And Kurzweil has two phases of his plan to live forever. Phase one of his plan involves reaching the year 2045. Currently, Ray Kurzweil is in his early 60s, and so to reach the year 2045, he'll need to reach the age of 97. So Kurzweil is involved in a very strict training regimen. He, he works out, he stays trim, and he stays fit. He has a strict dietary uh, plan that he, that he follows. He takes 150 supplements daily. Phase one of his plan to live forever is to reach the year 2045. In the year 2045, he believes that technology will have reached the point where computers can process information with the same complexity of the human brain. That brings in phase two of Kurzweil's plan. Phase two, is, as Newsweek puts it, is for him to embed his consciousness into silicone, which means that he can live on inside machines forever and ever. Amen. And Newsweek's, that's right, Newsweek's use there of religious imagery is not accidental, is it? It's a very spiritual plan that Kurzweil has to escape the physical realm. As one biologist at the University of Minnesota said, it's a new age spiritualism. That's all it is. Even geeks want to find God somewhere, and Kurzweil provides it for them. Even geeks want to find God somewhere, and Kurzweil provides it for them. Kurzweil looks at the physical world and sees the, the frailty of the human body, and his, his plan to escape sin's curse is to escape the physical realm, enter into a machine. Kurzweil's plan fails to recognize that the problem that we have is not ultimately about our physical bodies, is it? The problem that we have is not ultimately a physical problem. In fact, Scripture teaches us that we are going to have a physical body on into eternity. The problem isn't that we're physical creatures. You and I, after we receive our resurrected body, are going to continue into eternity as a, a union of, of spirit and flesh, spirit and, and physical being. On into eternity, we're going to be physical creatures. Our problem is not with the physical realm. Our problem is with the effect of sin's curse upon our physical bodies. And every single person in here has experienced in some way the problem of sin's curse in the physical realm. 
Every single one of us have felt the frailty of our flesh. We have gotten sick. We've gotten older. Some of us have become very ill. All of us have experienced the reality of living with a physical body. And the wonderful thing about the redemption that Christ offers is that the redemption that Christ offers is not only a spiritual redemption, it is a spiritual redemption that has cascading effects into the physical world. The redemption that God offers humanity is not only a spiritual redemption, but a spiritual redemption that has effects into the physical world. All of the created realm is going to someday be redeemed. In Romans chapter 8, Paul puts it this way, he says, creation waits, the created world waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, all the created realm waits for that day that you and I are going to have glorified bodies. The creation, Paul goes on to say, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's using a metaphor here. All of the created realm suffers from decay. And the created realm, he's saying, it's like, they're, it's like it's anticipating that day that it's no longer affected by sin's curse. We know, he says, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, in this, in this glorified body. Someday, in the future, you're going to be removed from this, this body that's been tainted by sin, that feels the effect of sin's curse, and you're going to have this glorified body. And when Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory. 1 John 3, 2, we are God's children now, and what we will be, that is what it's going to look like in the future, has not yet appeared. We don't know what it's going to be like, but we do know, John says, that when he appears, we shall be like him. We're going to be similar to him. We're going to have that same sort of glorified body that he has. We shall see him as he is. That's our future. Our future is not to turn into some sort of hybrid cyborg. Our future is a redeemed body. The question is, what do we do now? Okay, in the future, I'm going to have this, this body like Christ's body. I'm going to be redeemed and have this glorified body redeemed in full. But what do I do today? What do I do right now as I struggle with the reality of living in a fallen world? What do I do as I encounter the ravaging effects of getting older? What do I do as my children suffer terrible illnesses? What do I do is I receive a, a diagnosis of some sort of terrible condition or disease? What do I do is those whom I love are given terrible news about the state of their physical health? What do I do in those circumstances? And what we see this morning as we look at the story of Jesus and his encounter with two individuals is we see that these individuals as well have come to a point in their life where they're going to need to make a decision about how they are going to respond to the physical ailments that God has brought into their life. One option that they have is to respond in fear. 
to consider the physical realm and the dangers of that physical realm of living under sin's curse, one option is to live in fear. The other option that Jesus is going to encourage each of these characters towards, each of these individuals towards, is faith. To acknowledge that, yes, I live in a fallen world, but even in the fallen world, I have hope and faith and believe in Christ's ability to redeem me from it. We, too, are faced with that decision as we encounter the physical realm and physical trials. Is our response going to be one of fear or faith? What I believe the central point of this text is is that in times of physical trials, in times of physical trials, we should not fear, only believe. And that's what Jesus is going to say. Let's, let's look at the story. We're going to look at the story, and then after we look at the story, we're going to look at some principles of application for ourselves from this story. Remember the context that the story occurs in. The first of these three stories began as Jesus stepped into a boat with his disciples, and they traveled from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side. And Mark tells us, by the way, that as Jesus got into the boat, there were several other boats that, that got into the water with them. Jesus and his disciples begin to sail across the Sea of Galilee, and as they sail across the Sea of Galilee, there's this great storm that arises. And as this great storm arises, Jesus exercises, demonstrates his authority over the created realm, over nature. He tells the sea to be still. He saves the life of himself and his disciples. And presumably, he also probably saves the lives of those other boats that were out on the lake with them. Mark doesn't tell us what happened to those boats, but as Jesus calms the sea, perhaps these other sailors' lives are saved as well. And these guys, perhaps, go back to the other side of the lake. Jesus and his disciples continue on to the eastern side. Remember, Jesus has just demonstrated his authority over the created realm. He goes on, he goes to the other side of the lake, and on the other side of the lake, he encounters the demoniac, this this guy in the Gerasian region who has a demon. We talked about there's actually two men, but Luke focuses on just one individual. And he demonstrates on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the Gentile region there, he demonstrates his authority over the spiritual realm. Then they get back into the boat and they travel back across the Sea of Galilee. And perhaps these other boats have already arrived there and told people what had happened. And so that brings us to our story this morning that begins in verse 40 as Jesus goes back on the other side of the lake, there's a crowd there to welcome him. He arrives there, there's a crowd to welcome him, and Luke draws our attention to one individual in particular. It's a man named Jairus. And as Jesus comes to the other side of the lake here, Jairus comes out to meet Jesus and falls at his feet. And Luke tells us that he is the leader of the synagogue. And the word that Luke uses there means perhaps that the primary leader of the synagogue there. Remember, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' relationships with the religious leaders have not always been all that great, to put it nicely, right? Remember just a chapter earlier, it's the religious leaders who oppose the teachings of John the Baptist and refuse to repent. It's Simon the Pharisee who encounters Jesus and the sinful woman, and instead of falling at Jesus' feet like the sinful woman, looks at the sinful woman with contempt. And Jesus has some strong words to say to Simon. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day, in Luke's account so far, and we're going to continue to see this, have not responded universally with faith in Jesus at all. 
there's been opposition to Jesus' ministry on the part of these religious leaders. But now this guy, this Jairus guy, comes and falls down at Jesus' feet, and Luke tells us, implores him, begs him to come to his house. Now what makes Jairus different than these other religious leaders? Well, Jairus would have had many of the same teachers and trainings and traditions. Jairus would have had the same expectations as to what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And Jesus was failing to meet Jairus' expectations just as, Jairus, uh, just as Jesus had failed to meet other people's expectations of what the Messiah should have looked like. Jairus would have assumed certain things about Jesus, about what the Messiah was supposed to look like, about how the Messiah was supposed to treat other people and view other people, and Jesus was radically different than what Jairus would have expected. So what makes G- Jairus fall down at Jesus' feet in the way that he does here in Luke chapter 8. There's been an event occur in his life that has shaken him to his core. Jairus, Luke tells us, had an only daughter. A daughter who was 12 years old and she was dying see that the difference between Jairus and many of the other religious leaders is that Jairus is desperate. Many of you are parents who have encountered great suffering in your parenting. Many of you have experienced the loss of a child, some in the womb, some in infancy, some in childhood, some in adulthood you know the pain that Jairus feels. You know the desperation. And many of you are parents who maybe you haven't lost a child, but you've faced a terrible diagnosis concerning the health of your child, or you've seen your child in great danger, and there's been that moment that you were completely unable to help your child, and you felt that, that fear and that, that longing and that desperation. I've mentioned this before, but I can remember whenever Hannah was, was 14 days old, she had asphyxiated, she was suffocating to death, I was holding her in my arms, and there was absolutely nothing I could do to save her. And many of you have been in far worse circumstances than that. And you don't even need to be a parent to know that what Jairus is feeling here, right? Many of you have had loved ones who have been in this situation, they're physically ill, they're in great danger, and there's absolutely nothing that you can do to heal them. And if you think about the things you would do, the list is long of the things that you would do if you could somehow alleviate their suffering, bring them relief, cause them to come to complete health. The list is incredibly long of what you'd be willing to do. The list is incredibly short of what you would not be willing to do, and yet you can do nothing. Jairus can do nothing. He is a desperate man. And so the leader, the religious leader of this community, a very prominent person, comes to Jesus' feet, falls down at his feet, and begs him, please come to my house. And Jesus follows this desperate man through these crowds towards Jairus' house. Luke tells us as they go through the crowds, the crowds are, are pressing in among, uh, on them. And that word pressing that Luke uses there is the same word he used earlier in the chapter to describe the, 
the, the weeds choking out the good seeds. These, these crowds are kind of choking in on Jairus and Jesus. And you can imagine if you're Jairus, you're in this desperate state. You're trying to get Jesus to your house. You're like, get out of the way. Get out of the way. My, my daughter is dying. And he's trying to get Jesus to his house. And these crowds are pressing in among them. And Luke, as he's telling us this story, draws our attention away from the crowds onto a single person in that crowd, another desperate person. Verse 43 says there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So Jairus, if you think about Jairus and this woman, they're on complete opposite ends of the, the social spectrum, right? Here's Jairus. Jairus is, is, is the leader of the synagogue. He is the most connected person socially in this community, perhaps at least one of the most connected people socially in the community. He's at the very center of life, of religious life, and, and very well connected. That's Jairus. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have this, this woman. This woman was perhaps one of the least socially connected people in the community. What do we know about this, this poor woman here? We know, first of all, that she had this, this terrible physical condition. She had this uterine hemorrhage for uh, 12 years. Not only that, not only, not only should we feel pity for her because of the physical pain that she's in, there's also emotional pain that is connected with this ailment that she has undergone for the last 12 years. You see, according to the law, she was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and had been for 12 years. In other words, she couldn't participate in worship. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go to the synagogue. People couldn't touch her. She couldn't get married. And if she had been married, she would have most likely have been divorced by her husband. So here's this woman that is completely ostracized, unconnected from religious life, social life. And what's more, not only has she gone through this physical and emotional pain, Luke tells us that she's also spent all of her living on physicians. Now, Luke is a doctor. He focuses on the doctor bill. Mark, Mark tells us that she had suffered at the hands of many physicians. Luke doesn't call it suffering. He just refers to the bill. Mark says she suffered. She's suffered at the hands of many physicians. What would they have done to a woman in her condition? Well, contemporary writings tell us this. They would have concocted different potions for her to drink. They would have put some stuff in wine and told her to drink it. They would have had her dig a bunch of pits and put some vine branches in there, burn them, and then she would have had to go to city each one of them. One of the cures was this. A woman in this condition was to take a, a glass of wine, put some stuff in it, and the doctor was supposed to set her at a crossroads. And she was supposed to stand there, drink the wine, and a physician would sneak up behind her and go, Arise thy flux! and just scare her. Okay? That was the cure process. And not surprisingly, Luke tells us, no one had been able to heal her. She's suffered at the hands of many physicians. Like Jairus, she is desperate. She has been separated from social life in this community. She has no hope of being healed, and she is a desperate woman. What does Luke tell us happens next? As this desperate man leads Jesus through the crowds, this desperate woman, verse 44 tells us, came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately, immediately she 
was healed. All the other cures have been ineffective. At this moment, in her desperation, she risks causing other people around her to be considered ceremonially unclean. She touches the fringe of Jesus' garment and is healed. Now, Jesus recognizes what has happened. If, If Jesus was just about physical healing, what should he have done at this moment? He should have just continued on his way. He knew what had happened. Someone had been healed. Jairus' daughter is sick. Get to the sick girl, right? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus stops as he's going through this crowd, and he asks this question, who was it that touched me? And everyone around him says, not me, not me, and this woman doesn't admit that it's her either, right? Everyone's denying that they touched him. Peter is getting a little annoyed. Jesus, this is no time to go OCD on me. You're surrounded by a bunch of people. Of course people are touching you. Jesus says, no, no, someone has touched me, for I perceive, he says in verse 46, that power has gone out from me. Jesus recognizes that his task here is not just to see this woman healed physically, but to address her in her spiritual condition, that this physical illness that she's faced would lead to spiritual healing as well. And so Jesus is calling her to to recognize faith and to overcome her fear. This woman, verse 47, sees that she's not hidden. Even in this midst of this crowd, Jesus recognizes her and who she is and, and what the condition is. She recognizes that, and she comes, again, like Jairus, trembling and falling down before him. And what does she do? She declares in the presence of all this peop- all the people this embarrassing condition and what's happened, why she touched him, and then she says how she had been immediately healed. This was the act of a compassionate Messiah because what does he say? Very gently, he says to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What's Jairus doing? Jairus is probably going insane at this point, right? Jesus has stopped in the midst of this crowd. He's trying to, you know, find out who touched him. And then there's this woman. Okay, she's healed. Let's go, Jesus. Let's go. Jesus spends the time with her. Jairus is probably going out of his mind with worry for his daughter. And what do we see indeed has happened? While Jesus is speaking these words, Luke tells us, while he's speaking these words, someone comes from Jairus' house and gives him the worst news possible, and some very troubling advice. This person says, your, your daughter is dead. She's died. It, it's over. Leave the teacher alone. I think this is perhaps one of the most important parts of this story. It's interesting, by the way, isn't it, that, that the story of Jairus and this woman are, are told together. And all the gospel accounts, the three gospel accounts that cover the story, both of them intertwine these two stories. I believe it's because we're, we're dealing in both stories with desperate people with these physical conditions that are in danger of having fear instead of faith. And Jairus, at this most desperate moment of his life, who's just received the most terrible news of his life, the lowest point of his life is told by Jesus what? He says, don't fear. Don't fear, 
only believe and she will be well. Jesus recognizes that at this point, Jairus is faced with two options. Is he going to fear, not believe in Jesus' ability, or is he going to continue in the faith that he's demonstrated already? Is this physical ailment going to result in this spiritual desperation that has the fruit of faith, or is Jairus going to succumb to fear? Jesus exhorts him, don't fear. Don't give in to fear. Keep the faith. Only believe she will be well. Verse 51 tells us this. He goes into the house. Jesus does. He doesn't allow anyone to enter with him except for the three disciples, Peter, John, and James, and then the mom and dad of the child. Verse 52 tells us that at the house there are already people there weeping and mourning. And remember, as we've talked about before, funerals in this culture happen very quickly. On the day that a person dies, they're, they're buried very often. And so that's what is happening here. Jesus, Jesus says that she's not dead. Do not weep, he tells the mourners. She's not dead, but sleeping, and they laugh at him. They mock him, knowing that, in fact, she is dead. Then Jesus goes in the room. He's there with Peter and James and John and the mom and the dad, and he takes this little girl, this little 12-year-old girl's hand, and our sovereign Lord, in the gentleness of our shepherd, grabs her hand and says, Child, arise. Wake up. Her spirit, Luke tells us, returned to her, and she got up and was restored to her mom and her dad. And Jesus, again, in his compassion, is concerned with her physical needs and says, go ahead and eat something. Not only demonstrating his compassion, but yes, this was she is a real human flesh, physical being. And so she eats something. And her parents are amazed, and Jesus charges them not to tell anyone what has happened. So a contrast from what he told the person who had been possessed by a demon last week, he tells tell everyone in this Gentile region, here in the Jewish region, leader of the synagogue, Jesus says, not yet. What's the point? What are the points of application from this story? Let me give you three things to kind of apply as we think about Jesus demonstrating his authority over the physical realm in Jairus' life and the life of Jairus' daughter and the life of this woman who'd had this discharge of blood for 12 years. Here's the first point of application. Allow God, allow God to use physical illness in your life to drive you to spiritual desperation. That's the first point. Allow God to use physical illness in your life to drive you to a point of spiritual desperation. You know what? One of the most dangerous things in our spiritual life, if not the most dangerous thing, is pride. It's pride. A failure to acknowledge our need for God is deadly in our spiritual lives. Physical illness Physical illness is a loving thing from a loving God that causes us to reach a point of spiritual desperation and recognizing our need for him. It's a universal nature. All of us face these times when we need God and and we, we recognize our complete inability to face the physical problems that we all are inevitably going to face. Face. There is a universal nature to physical ailments. There is no one in here who is not going to suffer the effects, the physical effects of the fall. No one in here. All of us 
succumb to it in one way or another. Every single one of us, every single one of us have faced times in our lives where we've been ill or sick or people that we loved have become ill or sick. And all of us have had friends or perhaps ourselves or people that are very close to us, family members, who have succumbed to a particular type of illness. And there have been things that we've, we've tried to do, and, and, I, and I think these are good things that we do. You know, all of us have, have contributed money to these charities. We've, we've walked in, in uh, fundraising events, and we've, we've uh, you know, prayed for individuals, and, and all those things are things that I believe that we should do and that God calls us to do. And, of course, our prayer for any of us who are suffering with physical illnesses or, or chronic conditions would be that God would, would heal us and restore us to life so that we could continue to glorify him while he gives us life. But inevitably, even when we're restored to perfect health, we're going to die someday. You can't stop death. Is that a bad thing? Let me suggest that physical illness, chronic conditions, cancer, diseases, even those things are gifts from a loving God. The psalmist, the psalmist would say this, as he talks about our illness in Psalm 49, he talks about how every single human being faces the reality of death. Psalm 49, he says this in verse 1, Hear this, all peoples, everybody, listen up. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, low, high, rich, poor together. My mouth speaks wisdom. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my, incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And then he says this, um, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of the riches, why should I fear those people? No man, no man can ransom another. You can't redeem another person physically or spiritually, ultimately. No one can give to God the price of his life. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. There is no one in here who can bargain with God for eternal life. It says the, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Verse 10, he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. All people are going to face the effects of living in a fallen world. All of us, no matter how wealthy, no matter how young, no matter how good-looking are going to face death. And that is a good thing for us spiritually. The psalmist says this, says, no, one can pay, no one can pay God for his life. No one can ransom his own life. No one can ransom the life of another person. He says this, though, verse 15 of Psalm 49, but God will ransom my life. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of death. He will receive me. We are so proud 
we're so wealthy in this country, physical illness and the fact that it still remains and the death it remains is a sign from a loving God, a circumstance from a loving God that drives us to physical desperation. No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, God can be glorified in the midst of those circumstances. Our predicament, our physical predicament, can cause us to reach spiritual desperation and turn to the only one who can restore us to spiritual and physical health. Desperation is healthy because of what it does to us spiritually. Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, let me read a couple other verses for you. Psalm 119, the psalmist says this to God. He says, you have dealt well with your servant, God. God, you've dealt well with me. What did God do to him? God afflicted him. He says, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, before you brought affliction into my life, he says, I went astray. But now I keep your word. God had used physical affliction in the psalmist's life to cause him to reach a point of spiritual desperation and turn to God's word and receive God's healing. Verse 71, the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. That's what God had done in the psalmist's life as a result of physical illness. Allow God in your life, allow God to use physical illness that you encounter in your own life, in the lives of your children, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of your family, in the lives of your parents. Allow God to use physical illness in your life to break you of your pride and to cause you to reach a point of spiritual desperation. Jairus reaches this point where the only person he can turn to is Jesus. Secondly, second point of application here is this. Be aware that your natural tendency, be aware that your natural tendency is to be filled with fear instead of faith. Be aware that your natural tendency on your own, left to your own devices, your tendency is going to be filled be to be filled with fear instead of faith as you encounter these times of physical difficulties. Now, what do we mean by fear here? Uh, my, my children and I and, and Whitney are, are reading through the, the book The Hobbit in, uh, sometimes in our, in our uh, times together as a family. Now, you know the story of The Hobbit. There's this little tiny creature here, and he's short and he's small, and uh, he's kind of timid, but then he becomes brave, and he's able to, to face hard circumstances. Is that the type of fear and bravery we're talking about? No, we're, we're not talking about a sort of emotional response and, and bravery. What we're talking about is this, a, a fear in the sense of, of dread and lack of faith. Now, God uses the word fear in several different ways throughout Scripture. Some fear is good fear to have. For example, in fact, the primary use of, of fear in Scripture is to call us to have fear in God. As we think about God, as we think about his, his awesomeness and his majesty and how he reigns over all the created realm, we should be in fear of him. It makes no sense for us not to be in reverential awe of the God of the universe. Fear him. Good idea. Wise principle. Fear God. But there's also a type of fear that is a bad fear to have. And it's a fear that Jesus warns Jairus against here. In fact, turn over just a couple verses to Luke chapter 12. 
In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says some more things about this type of fear that he's cautioning Jairus against. In verse 4 of, of Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him, that is God, who has, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, be in, in, in reverent awe of him. But as far as other people, don't live in fear of those people. He says, are not, two, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered Fear not, don't be afraid of those things. You are more valuable, you are of more value than many sparrows. Then going on in verse 22, he says to his disciples, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life, listen to this, life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they don't sow, they don't reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour, a single moment to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You see again that contrast? The contrast between fear and faith. Jesus says to Jairus, don't fall into the fear. Don't become anxious and doubting God's goodness only continue to believe, have faith, trust. That's what Jesus' call here is in Luke 12 as well. The contrast is between fear and faith and our tendency. Our tendency is to be filled with fear and not with faith. But fear is the very antithesis of faith, the very polar opposite of faith. Third application is this, third point of application have faith in a sovereign and a compassionate God. Have faith in a sovereign and a compassionate God. You see Jesus' compassion in, in several ways here. You see his compassion as he interacts with this, this poor woman. He doesn't say, hey, you need to, when I say who touched me, you need to step forward. When I give a cut, you jump, all right? No, in his compassion, he deals not just with her physical problem, but with the underlying spiritual issue that the physical ailment was to point her toward. He's a compassionate God. He's a compassionate Messiah. You say, well, it's one thing for him to tell that to Jairus. Because Jairus, after all, Jairus' daughter is healed. Jairus' daughter, Jairus' daughter is healed by Jesus. Of course, Jesus can say, don't fear, only believe, and have faith to Jairus, because he knows what he's going to do to Jairus in about an hour or so. He said, that doesn't help me. 
because I'm facing a condition or my loved one is facing a condition in which if, if Christ doesn't intervene the same way he intervenes here, they're going to, to die or, or perhaps they've already died and they've been dead for some time. But you know what? Jesus didn't reach Jairus' daughter in time. Did he? Did he reach Jairus' daughter in time to prevent Jairus from hearing these words, your daughter is dead? Jairus hears those words and faces the reality of a child who has died. And Jairus, at a moment of time, is forced to answer the question, will I fear or will I have faith? You say, yeah, but in an hour, you know what? What's the difference in God's mind between an hour and a hundred years? What's the difference in God's mind between an hour and 10,000 years? If his plan in eternity is to bring about the resurrection of all loved ones who place their faith in Jesus Christ and allow them to experience eternity together. You see, Jesus, for an hour, allowed Jairus to go through this so that Jairus would be faced with fear or faith in order to encourage these physical ailments in Jairus' life and the life of his family to bring them to deeper faith. If that's Jesus' plan for an hour, why can't it be his plan for 10 years or 50 years or 60 years in your life to bring you to deeper faith in him if his plan, his loving plan, is an eternity to restore all things, and to bring about complete redemption. Martin Luther faced the death of his of a child. His daughter Magdalena was 14 years old. This is according to one of his, I'm reading from a biography of Martin Luther's life. It says, Magdalena was 14 years old and lay upon her deathbed. And Luther prayed this, O oh God, I love her so, but thy will be done. And turning to his daughter, he said, Magdalene, my little girl, you would like to stay here with your father, wouldn't you? And yet you would be glad to go to your father in heaven as well. And she said, his daughter replied, yes, dear father, as God wills. This person writes that Luther reproached himself because God had blessed him as no bishop had been blessed in a thousand years, and yet he could not find it in his heart to give God thanks. His wife stood off overcome by, by grief, and Luther held the child in his arms as she passed on. When she was laid to rest, he said this. He said, he said, you will rise and shine like the stars and the sun, but how strange it is to know that she is at peace and all is well, and yet to be so sorrowful. And he said this. I have a caretaker. I have a caretaker who lies in the cradle. I have a caretaker, Jesus Christ, who lies in the cradle with my children and yet nevertheless sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Therefore, be at peace. Amen. We all face that dilemma as we think about the physical world around us. Am I going to respond with fear as I think about aging, as I, I think about my children aging, as I think about my, my parents aging? Am I going to respond with fear or am I going to respond with faith? 
I mentioned Ray Kurzweil at the beginning of, of our time together this morning. Ray Kurzweil has made a decision to, to pursue immor- immortality uh, through machinery. Will he be successful in 2045 if the Lord doesn't return first? Will we have these, these cyborg, hybrid, human being technology? I don't know. I, my guess is no. It sounds pretty crazy, but, but maybe. But let me tell you this. I sure hope not. I sure hope that people don't achieve the ability to live these long lives unencumbered by physical ailments. You know why? Because physical illness in our lives is something that God can use. The reality of our own mortality is something that a loving God can use to bring us to a point of spiritual desperation. I can leave you with these words of encouragement from 1 Corinthians 15, and I believe these are words that that Paul offers and Scripture offers as we think about the hope that we're to have, and so I I can leave you with nothing better than than what God has said in his word. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead shall be raised imperishable. We shall all be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the application of this? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. As we're faced with this mortal body, as we contemplate the future of immortality, be steadfast, do not fear, only believe. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the immortality you offer us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, if someone hasn't placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, for the forgiveness of their sins and received your free gift of eternal life, I pray that they would do so even this morning. And Father, give us great faith, cause, us to remo- cause fear to be removed from us as we trust in your Son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.